All right, Adrian Elrod, uh, you're on the line, aren't you? I am. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, my partner in crime. Uh, we are uh, the Electables, and we've got a special guest today, David Wasserman, who is the house editor for the Cook Political Report, and is basically the person that I check, I go to for any sort of like nuggets, data, insight into races. He's the person. He follow him on Redistrict at Redistrict on Twitter. For special elections in Louisiana, he was the first person I checked with. When he called it, I was like, all right, it's done. Same thing in Kentucky. So he is an expert in not only house races, but politics in general. And if you're looking for any sort of great data points and history behind races, etc., Dave is the best. And we're uh, lucky to have him on. That's a lot of pressure, Doug. I know, I know. I raised the real. I raised the bar on you. Um, so, Adrian, <laughs> we want are to kick so us off? lucky to have Dave. Well, we're so lucky to have Dave on, and I also just want to reiterate. You know, Doug, you and I go on TV. We, you know, basically provide analysis based on our experience and the races that we worked on, and kind of our perspective of just being on the campaign trail and being in the field. But Dave actually takes kind of our pontification on topics and then backs it with data and then comes up with a very well-educated analysis. So he takes it the whole next level, which is why, to your point, every time there's a special election, every time a new poll comes out, I always want to understand what what Dave's perspective is because you really get a snapshot of what's happening in the country and, of course, most importantly, how this impacts the election in 2020, how these various, various races and events will all lead up to what ultimately may or may not happen on election night in 2020. So, Dave... We're so happy to have you today. I'm just going to kick off a quick question um, at the beginning. So I know you, you've poured over, you're constantly pouring over polling data and whatnot pertaining to a variety of events and how that will play out going into the election year in 2020 next year. How do you think impeachment in particular is going to play out in some of these battleground states? And what are you seeing? You know, we know what we're seeing nationally. You know, everybody today is talking about this new Fox News poll that shows 50% of Americans support impeaching and remo- removing the president from office. But what are you seeing? How do you think that that's playing out? And what are you seeing in the states that really matter most? So seven to eight states that will decide this election. Well, thank you, Adrian. And I, th- I think it plays out differently in those battleground states than it does in national polls. I think you know if there's one thing we all need to disabuse ourselves from, it's the idea that national polls can tell us the story of what will happen in the 2020 election. Because, of course, we learned that in 2016. Uh, but when we look at, for example, the Marquette poll that shows impeachment at 40% uh, for conviction and removal to 52% opposed in Wisconsin, you know, I, I spent a good chunk of last week in Wisconsin and rural Illinois. And, you know, I, I actually like to visit these places to try and connect the data points a little bit. And uh, the group of dairy farmers with, I was with in Green Bay, um, man, you know, from my conversations with them on what they were hearing in their communities, which are still purplish but kind of on their way to becoming red, it was not surprising that that Marquette poll last week showed a continuation of opposition um, to impeachment. So I think for the 31 House Democrats – in in uh, in Trump district, soon to be thirty, uh, <laughs> and we could talk about that. Uh, this is a, a matter that they would like to put behind them quickly. Elrod, you want to uh, take take any more? 
Yeah. So, the, look, I, I think that's what's so interesting. And I think that sometimes we do get so focused on the fact that, you know, we're looking at these national polls. We're looking um, to see how the impeachment process is moving the electorate. But again, what we like to do, Dave, is go to your Twitter feed <laughs> and read your analysis um, on National Journal, because what really matters to the point you just referenced is, what are these people thinking? What are they feeling in the key states that are going to decide this election? You know, there's been some focus groups. I don't know if you guys happened to watch Meet the Press yesterday, but there was a focus group in Michigan where they were talking about impeachment and how this is affecting them. And a lot of the people, it was actually a little disconcerting, a lot of the undecided voters in this, um, you know, in, in this focus group said that they're tired of impeachment. It's exhausting. Um, it's really wearing them out. And so, how do you think that that's going to impact, you know, where we are in, in January? Do you think more people are going to be potentially compelled by the Senate, especially if there is a trial? What do you think Democrats, Dave, need to do in order to try to draw more people in and make them realize the magnitude of what Donald Trump has done and what we're facing here? There is fatigue that has set in. And the, the fact of the matter is voters who are persuadable are not tuned into a story they know the ending to. And you know, the, the challenge for Democrats as far as the merits of arguing the merits of impeachment um, is that we're living in two essentially alternate universes of information flows in this country, uh, where uh, half of the country, nearly half of the country, sees the entire process as invalid. Um, that's not to say it is, obviously. But when, for example, the New York Times runs a front page editorial um, uh, blasting Donald Trump alongside uh, a story detailing why uh, President Trump uh, uh, is is being impeached. I think that editorial tends to do a disservice to the hard news uh, that is that is being compiled by by reporters who are going by the book. Um, in the eyes of a lot of the country, Democrats have already made up their minds. Uh, on this, and I think that is detrimental to uh, to the the lesson that that Democrats learned from the 2018 midterms, which was that you know what got them so many seats in the House was not talking about the Mueller report, not talking about Russia. Um, obviously, this was before the Ukraine call, but it was health care. It was issues that that voters who don't eat, sleep, and breathe politics see as affecting their lives. And Democrats did an exceptional Those kitchen job. kitchen table issues. Yes. Democrats did an exceptional job in 2018 of arguing that Republicans in Congress worked to take away their health care, to cut taxes for the wealthy, to uh, in upscale districts, they persuaded voters that the, the, the tax cut bill would adversely affect them uh, based on... Uh, changes to the SALT deduction. So these are the kinds of issues that won Democrats the midterms. And to the extent Democrats can get back to those, uh, they'll do well in 2020. Dave, I uh, agree with you on the national polling versus state polling. Uh, although uh, the folks at 538 have an interesting, they put out there that there is some correlation between the national polling and the state polling in the sense that if you start seeing folks dropping in the national poll, then there should be a correlate that, that you should see that happen in Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Um, but I do think there's an interesting thing going on with the polling right now where nationally Biden has been very stable. You know, for the most part, he has been around 27, 30 percent, right, uh, with some blips when he got in and then some dro- drops when he had uh, the debate exchange with Kamala Harris, but pretty consistent. Um, and by and Sanders has been relatively consistent. He had a drop, but um, uh, uh, I'm just curious. You look at nationally, Biden's doing. Uh, he's the front runner nationally. In Iowa, and New Hampshire, it's not the same story. Right now, he's near the top, but Buttigieg is likely the front runner. the The reason why I wonder if the national polls are more possibly more um, important to look at this year is because it does give you a sense of who is making up these candidates' coalition. And if you're Buttigieg, you're really happy about Iowa and New Hampshire, but nationally, you got to be worried that you're not attracting African-American voters. And that reflects itself in South Carolina, that's the earliest state that has significant African-American voters. So just wanted to have your get your thoughts on sort of that dynamic that we're seeing play out in these early states and then nationally with uh, the top fr- with the front runners. Yeah. And as you guys know, the 15% threshold here is really key. Right. Because until Pete Buttigieg is capable of proving that he can expand his appeal beyond predominantly white voters with college degrees, which, by the way, is the same kind of coalition we're seeing for Elizabeth Warren, uh, then we can't regard as serious his efforts to win delegates in a broad swath of Super Tuesday states. Keep in mind that 60% of delegates in Uh, to the Democratic Convention are going to be decided by March 15th. And there are an awful lot of southern red states where African-American Democrats decide a whole lot of delegates. And if Pete Buttigieg can't hit 15 percent in those districts, then he's leaving a lot of support, a lot of delegates on the table. So that's why I still don't regard him as in the same tier as uh, Biden and Sanders at the moment, Um, probably slightly below Warren as well. Um, because his support base is not broad. Yeah. And the argument that I think people that Pete supporters would make would be, well, Barack Obama didn't have, you know, Barack Obama wasn't doing particularly well in South Carolina before Iowa. And then he won Iowa and that changed everyone's opinion of him in South Carolina. And he went on to blow out um, Clinton in South Carolina and went on his way to the nomination. Right. But Obama wasn't doing this poorly. No, I agree. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and Democratic voters this year have a multitude of choices, whereas in 2008 and 2016, they essentially had two, which, by the way, uh, increases the risk of a contested convention, as you as you guys have been discussing. You know, if you had to kind of paint the perfect portrait of what could lead to a contested convention, it would be, you know, four or five people who are still in the mix on Super Tuesday who are splitting delegates in all kinds of different directions because they're all above 15 percent of the vote. And given the more compressed uh, calendar this year, uh, the fact that there are um, fewer caucus states that that can be dominated by one candidate uh, who can rally a lot of activists, I do think the risk of a contested convention is real, although I'd probably still put the odds somewhere south of 50 percent. But if you examine just what Pete needs to do uh, to try and change this, right, it's basically what he has been trying to do for the past three weeks, which is to do smaller events uh, in African-American communities, whether it's historically black colleges and universities, whether it's in churches. You know, if, if I were Mayor Pete's campaign, I wouldn't mind this becoming a referendum on gay marriage in the black community. Uh, he has nothing to lose at this point, right? He's 
you know, below 5%, below probably 2% with black voters. Uh, and, you know, there's there's clearly a majority of support uh, among black Democrats for, uh, for, for gay marriage, even though it's not as high as for white Democrats. So, you know, could that... If if that were to to transpi- transpire, could that get him to double digits? Maybe, but you know he's kind of doing everything he can to this point, and we haven't seen evidence that the needle is moving. I think one interesting development in the race is the is the approach Elizabeth Warren is now taking. Uh, she's become much more aggressive uh, in terms of com- taking on her opponents, particularly Mayor Pete. Um, we saw for really much of the summer. In debates, she did. She had this real, I thought, very uh, a very savvy move where, if someone went after her or went after an idea that she supported, Medicare for all, she sort of ducked and allowed Bernie Sanders to respond. So she never really was punching back a lot. She was keeping it very positive. Now we're seeing an exchange with her and Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete is also being aggressive too in terms of. You know, her asking him for his client list and Pete calling him, asking her for her uh, tax returns. But I see that as a pretty significant change in strategy from the Warren folks. What, what, are your, what is your sense on that, as well as her, um, the, 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 the fall in numbers that we've seen among her campaign? I, you know, I, I'm just, I wanted to get your sense of that. Yeah, I think there are two things that have happened with uh, Warren's campaign. The first is that, you know, despite being regarded as the ideas person, as the details candidate for most of 2019, um, when she's outlined more details of her plan um, to gradually shift uh, to to a Medicare for all system, um, she's come under attack from both the left and the right, or, or I should say the center of the Democratic Party over those details, over whether she's being aggressive enough or not aggressive enough. The second thing I think has happened is that um, Democratic voters do tune in to uh, to general election trial heats. They, they do read the New York Times. And when the when the upshot and Siena came out with those battleground state polls that showed spooked her spooked everyone, yeah, and and look that electability concern I think is front of mind for Democrats who have been considering Elizabeth Warren, and are now kind of uh, more drawn towards towards other candidates or have concerns about her electability in the fall, and I think that is justified on the, on those Democrats' part. You know, we talk a lot about her position on health care, but if there's one position that I think is kind of underrated as a general election weakness. It is her proposal to ban fracking on day one. Um, about a month ago, I went to Southwest Pennsylvania and met with um, with a group of labor and management folks um, for um, IBEW, a couple other unions um, that you know used to dominate politics in that region of the state. And these were, you know, of of the Democratic crowds that I've met, I'd say this had the highest ratio of mustaches um, <laughs> of, of any room full of Democrats I've seen. These are not Trump fans, but they were terrified of what her proposal would do uh, to Democratic performance in that part of the state. And keep in mind, Hillary Clinton still won more votes in western Pennsylvania outside the city of Pittsburgh than she won in the entire city of Philadelphia. And so there are still votes for Democrats left to lose there. Right, right. Uh Take us, what are your thoughts on Biden's strength? I mean, I've been, I think a lot of people have been surprised by it. Um, I haven't particularly been that surprised by it. I, I always thought that, you know, the media sort of always sort of writing the storyline that he was about to, you know, fall apart and implode was 
was, uh, I don't know if it was wishful thinking, but I don't think it really was based into much fact. I think that the the strength of his support with African-American voters and also um, more older white voters, blue-collar voters, uh, was much more resilient than a lot of people thought. But just take, what do you think about sure. Biden's strength? Well, first and foremost, black Democrats. You know, he's obviously dominant with that group, I think, mostly because of his connection um, to the Obama legacy and being part of the administration. Uh, and being seen as a longtime friend uh, to uh, to South Carolina Democrats, you know, he's shown up for years, for decades, really. It's a great point. Uh, and in addition, I think he's benefited from low expectations as far as um, his debate performances, his propensity to make gaffes. Uh, you know, I think Democrats, to um, to along the same lines of of what we've seen on the Republican side, are kind of growing frustrated with this zero tolerance, you know, media policy for, you know, if you slip up right. and you say something, you're going to get raked over the coals. Democrats expect Joe Biden to screw up from time to time. Uh, and so his support's been fairly durable. Uh, the other thing I think he's got going for him is um, not only is the progressive lane split between Warren and and um, Sanders, and not only is is Pete kind of cutting into college-educated whites, which is not Biden's base, but he's also still seen as the most electable candidate in the fall by Democrats. And whether that's um, by virtue of you know his moderate reputation or simply his name ID, or Democrats believing that he has a stronger appeal in um, in non-white parts of the country and could draw out more of those votes. That's the perception. Now, I'm not sure that it's the reality. I'm not sure Joe Biden is the most electable uh, candidate in the fall. Uh, I tend to think that voters have broad concerns about his age. Uh, we saw a poll earlier this year. NBC said you know, th- only 37 percent of voters said they were comfortable or enthusiastic about a candidate over 75 becoming president for the first time. Then I also think Democrats tend to underrate uh, the Trump campaign's ability to attack Biden, not just from the right by calling, you know, Hunter Biden the new email server, but also from the left by calling him a corporate Democrat who is terrible to Anita Hill and, uh, you know, oppose school busing. Is that totally hypocritical on the part of the Trump campaign? Absolutely. <laughs> is it potentially effective at driving a wedge in the Democratic coalition? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kamala Harris. Uh, would you have guessed when this all started uh, a year ago that she would have been the first sort of big name to drop? Not necessarily, but the rationale what for- What were the warning signs too? Yeah, I, I think the rationale for her campaign was was never quite clear. Look, I think she clearly saw what happened in 2018 and made a calculation based on you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad coming into Congress and said, you know, the Democratic Party's moving left that's where I've got to go. She wasn't alone in making that calculation either. But by saying one day, you know, I've got some news, I'm in favor of Medicaid for all, and she got the word wrong, uh, she, <laughs> she signaled that, that that was her path toward, you know, to winning the nomination in, in her view. And in reality, I, I really don't think the Democratic coalition has moved far left. Those victories uh, for, for AOC and others in the squad were reflective of what was going on in a very small subset of very activist progressive districts in the country. What actually happened in 2018 as well was that Democrats broke through in a lot of of 
you know, high education, wealthy suburbs. That's where they won the majority, right? And those voters are not Berniecrats. They're not Warrenites. Uh, these are professional, mostly white voters who like their private health insurance by mm-hmm. and large. And that lane, um, that that kind of AOC lane uh, in the Democratic primaries was already filled by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And so there's kind of nothing left there for Kamala. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also ignoring the fact you touched on this, but that, you know, we won 40 House seats. All of those Democrats had to go through either face potential primaries or they were or they were so strong that they didn't have primaries. And they were middle of the road Democrats in districts that, um, yes, they tilted. They were more center, a little bit center right. But in those districts, there wasn't a huge progressive hunger for a far-left Bernie-type candidate. That's right. And look, you and I both met uh, you know, dozens of these Democrats running in these swing districts in 2018. Um, we know from watching these House races for years that uh, that you know certain types of pragmatic Democrats can do very well in these red districts. And if there was one profile of candidate that really broke through more than any other for Democrats in these uh, in these moderate or Trump districts, it was women uh, who did not have much of a political background but had some national security experience. Uh, most of them were under 50. Uh, thinking of people like Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, Elaine Loria in Virginia, Chrissy Houlihan in Pennsylvania. That was the profile that absolutely crushed it for Democrats in 2018. And what I find so uh, so mind-boggling is that that profile is really not present in the Democratic field or on the debate stage. You've talked about this. Yes. Um, you tweeted that there that the that the more that you felt the strongest profile of a candidate yes. was Yeah. Was a charismatic uh, woman under fifty with a compelling biography, almost no political experience, and a national security background. And that may sound like a unicorn but look, the, the class of Democratic freshmen in the House, chock full of that profile. Um, and in many ways, I see the Democratic freshman class in the House as much more compelling than the Democratic presidential field. Uh, is there a Democrat who is uh, who didn't get in that you think, looking back, knowing what we know now, if they got in, they would be in that top tier? Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And look, does she check all of those boxes? Um, not the national security one, but- Look, this is someone who comes from state-level politics and is not of D.C., which I think is really underrated by um, by those of us who are here in terms of uh, electoral appeal. Um, clearly, she would fill a void in the Democratic primary as a, um, as a Southerner, um, someone who would have a natural appeal with black voters in the South. Uh, now, Joe Biden is dominating that lane, but if Abrams were in... Uh, wow, I think she would have some some appeal. Clearly, from watching her in 2018, not only did she uh, perform extraordinarily well um, in you know those those public set piece settings, and in her response to the State of the Union, but also she beat the point spread in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Elrod, are we? Do we have you back? I'm back. I'm back. So, Dave, I really want to pivot quickly to going back to impeachment again, but how impeachment is going to play out in the Democratic primary 
especially in terms of timing. I don't know if you even have any data on this, or maybe you've seen some focus groups to this and to, that, that address the question I'm about to ask you. But, you know, the, the media is speculating a lot about, you know, whether or not impeachment, a Senate trial um, regarding impeachment is going to, you know, how that's going to affect, especially those senators who are running for president, who are going to have to be back in Washington, uh, participating in the, in the trial. Um, I'm sort of, of the, you know, sort of of the notion that I'm not sure it's going to impact, um, you know, 2020 that much, because I think, first of all, if you are a sitting U.S. senator running for president, um, you're going to have some good airtime asking some really smart questions during the trial. Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, do you think it's going to um, hurt some of those folks who do have to be back in Washington for um, impeachment? And do you think it's going to, you know, how do you think it's just going to affect the race overall? If, it, if, if at all. Yeah, it depends on what's inside Mitch McConnell's head, right? And and uh, we can't pretend to know that. But, uh, you know, I tend to think that if there's one Democratic candidate who's underrated in terms of uh, electability in the fall, uh, or at least isn't getting the attention that she should, it's Amy Klobuchar, uh, someone who has mm-hmm. won Minnesota by 26 points just two years after Hillary Clinton won it by one. She clearly speaks the language of the upper Midwest. If... Mitch McConnell were to agree with that hypothesis, then he would probably want her off the campaign trail. Uh, but I can't say for sure what's what's going through his head with regards to uh, to that calculation. Because clearly, if you're taking Sanders, if you're if you're taking Klobuchar um, off off the and and Warren off the campaign trail, you know, theoretically that ought to benefit Buttigieg and Biden. The curious thing is, you know, Buttigieg clearly has surged into the lead in Iowa, but traditionally candidates who have taken the lead, you know, two to three months out from the caucuses have not done particularly well. Uh, In Biden's case, you'd think someone who has been polling in fourth place in several polls in Iowa would feel some sense of urgency to really get out there on the malarkey bus and, and do even more events than he's doing. But obviously town halls are not his, his strength. You don't think town halls are his strength? I actually think town halls. He does. He does. I've watched him in some town halls. I actually think his what he where he does his best is where he can sort of engage one on one with a voter. Mm-hmm. And there aren't many settings where you can do that. Uh, you can't do that in rallies, right? You kind of have to set up a town hall type uh, situation where he can engage, sort of press the flesh, um, and show the humanity that everyone loves about. Biden. That's that's my own personal view. I think debates aren't his strength. Sure. We know that. Um, but um, so. Uh, well, I think I wonder I wonder if Dave is actually referring to what I consider to be a very awkward, um, difficult to watch moment with Biden recently with a voter in Iowa um, who was asking him about Hunter Biden. Um, that was a really awkward exchange. <laughs> I, I was not personally very comfortable with it, but I feel like on the flip side, there are a lot of people who said, oh, we love that he defended his family and defended his son. Um, that wasn't to me the point. The point was, I think that he clearly showed that he doesn't quite have a comfortable answer yet on, you know, even the fact that what his son did in Ukraine was perfectly, um, you know, legal and, um, you know, didn't cross any, uh, you know, didn't break any laws or whatnot. It, I still think, arguably, you can say that it was an unethical relationship that he had with the um, with the utility or with the with the gas com- oil and gas company. So I'm just wondering, Dave, if you're coming 
at that conclusion that you just made because of, you know, with some of those awkward exchanges. Yeah, not necessarily that. I think actually the more fired up Joe Biden gets in those kinds of settings, the better for him. He needs to show some some urgency and some passion to convince right. uh, voters that he's not just running to be a caretaker president. Right. right. But I'm referring to his tendency to ramble. Yeah. And when he doesn't have a clock in front of him yeah. or, or a red light that goes mm-hmm. on, that can be a problem for him. Is, is he great in roundtable settings where he can give voters hugs? Absolutely. You know, and so I think that plays into his strength more, those smaller settings. But, you know, comparing Buttigieg and Biden side by side in a town hall or rally setting, you'd give the advantage to Buttigieg. Uh, you know, he's I, I think he's kind of the Ken Jennings of of debates in town halls where, you know, after he finishes a question, he's like, man, I just killed it. You yeah, know, you can tell in his in his mind. Yeah. And Elizabeth Warren and Elizabeth Warren. She is so strong in town halls, um, right. connects with voters, obviously, you know, rallies, town halls, stays behind, takes selfies, um, but also takes the time to really explain in very easily understandable terminology. Um, you know, what her policies are and how they're going to help the American people. And she's clearly got the energy, right? She's 70, but she is bouncing around and taking selfies like she's, you know, 20 years younger. She she comes across, I think, much younger than Joe Biden. Um, but you, know, you want to know a fun fact about her three largest rallies of the of the summer uh, in uh, in Seattle, Austin and yeah. New York? All three of her rally locations were within one mile of each of the following three chains, Whole Foods Market, <laughs> Urban Outfitters, and Lululemon Athletica. So it was rather convenient for <laughs> right. the selfie line attendees. Right, right. Um, want to talk to you a bit about the debate that's coming up this week. Um, what You know, there's been some – there has been uh, some blowback on Tom Perez um, and the – criteria that has been sent by the DNC, primarily by um, uh, Cory Booker and uh, uh, Castro. Um, There was a letter that was signed by um, nine candidates this week. But um, let me ask you this. If you were Tom Perez, would you, how would you, do you, what would you do, if anything, on debate criteria? I don't know that I'd change much. I think this this debate stage has kind of winnowed appropriately with Democratic voters' preferences, right? And, you know, is it a problem for Democrats that the debate stage is so white? You know, probably. Andrew Yang did qualify, I suppose. But, uh, but look, you know, clearly Democrats need to set some metric to be able to pare this down. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, they they are risking even more chaos. Yeah. Imagine if you did not have these debate criteria that were tied to, you know, donor preferences and voter preferences. And you also had um, you had a scenario where, uh, you know, you didn't have a 15 percent threshold. Well, you'd essentially be guaranteed a contested convention in Milwaukee and Democrats still fighting amongst each other while Trump has had essentially a four-year head start on re-election. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, the it's on one hand, there is some criticism. Well, you know, this is leaving out, this is, uh, the, the, the criteria makes it easier for a candidate with means to get in the debates, which I don't buy, to be honest. I don't necessarily agree with that. But if you waived the, quali- if you, see, right now you've got to get donors and polling. If you got rid of the polling, 
then or if you got rid of the do- I'm sorry, if you got rid of the donor qualification and you just and you just looked at the polling, you could have a situation where Michael Bloomberg would be um, in the next debate because I think he's right around five percent or close to it nationally. Um, so I don't know if there's really a, a, a I, I feel like the rules have been the rules for a while now. Everyone knows what the qualifications were. They're relatively simple um, in terms of the polling metrics. Uh, I don't really know what else Perez could do. I mean, I, I just I think yeah. that you, you could maybe you could maybe look at endorsements. Um, you know, that's something that Cory Booker is doing really well at. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, that becomes like okay, which endorsements? Yeah, I mean, that becomes even more of an inside game right. than the other two right. metrics that the Democrats are using. So I don't see where you go with that. You know, if there's if there's one reform that I that I would have made if I were him, it would be to just get rid of superdelegates altogether. Um, you know, not to say that he can do that unilaterally, but the fact that superdelegates um, can still vote on a second or third or fourth ballot uh, only, I think, has the potential to feed into the suspicion of the grassroots that somehow the preference um, for their candidate will be overridden at the convention. Um, you touched on earlier... Um uh, Jeff Van Drew, congressman from New Jersey, who has uh, quit uh, the Democratic Party um, and decided to join the Republican Party. Um, and he made it. I mean, what was interesting to me, I don't know, maybe what, uh, the way it was reported is that this wasn't this was all about his political survival. This had nothing to do with like deep ideological differences with the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. This was clearly an escape hatch for for him. Um, I don't think when he took the position initially against uh, voting for the um, the f- formal rules for the impeachment inquiry that he expected that this would happen. Um, but clearly, there was uh, there was a lot of blowback. I you know I think Van Drew was cognizant of the politics of his district, you know, obviously it voted for Trump by five, and there are plenty of Democrats who will vote for impeachment from districts that voted for Trump by more. But his brand back home in New Jersey, which had been carefully cultivated for many years, was that of a conservative uh, Democrat um, who was more attuned to local concerns than national politics. Uh, And in fact, he was so strong in Cape May County, which is historically Republican County where he's from, that he basically intimidated every credible Republican from running uh, when the seat became open in 2018. That wasn't going to happen in in 2020, and so he saw this as a way of uh, of, of kind of saying, you know what, um, you know, I think voters should decide Trump's fate in in an election. But it just didn't. It, it I don't think he was expecting the blowback it got from the local Democratic leaders and in. in uh, in the district. And at the county level, party bosses still matter a great deal in New Jersey. They do. Yeah. Um, the last person that I remember, there have been other party switchers, you know, the most notable one um, is Jim Jeffords, I, in terms of our lifetime, I think, in terms of really having a significant impact uh, on the balance of power. Um, Arlen Specter switched. Uh, but Parker Griffith, um, House Democrat from Alabama, he he switched in 2010, and that was you know he sort of pinned it on the health care vote at the time. Yeah, um, he went on to lose his primary. Right, and sometimes these party switches take, and sometimes they don't. But keep in mind, in 2010 there was no President Trump 
coming in and saying, hey, you know, Parker's my new best friend. Right. That's and true. Good so, point. you know, Jeff Andrews' political fate really rests in the hands of President Trump, you know, quite literally the, the Twitter account. Uh, and, and whether- <laughs> That's why that White House meeting was so important. Of course. And I don't doubt that Kevin McCarthy may have had something to do with that. Uh, but it depends on, on <clears throat> how much the Trump administration- or how much Trump personally is willing to follow through on giving cover to him in a primary setting. And, you know, it helps Van Drew that Republicans had not yet coalesced behind anyone. Right. Which you could argue maybe you could argue for him to stay as a Democrat. You know, I mean, like because they hadn't had a clear opponent, um, you know, there's. You know, would would Van Drew have won reelection had he voted for impeachment? Um, no, I'm saying voting uh, against uh, impeachment yeah. as a Democrat yeah. and that district. Yeah, I don't think he would have won a primary without the support of those county organizations, because keep in mind, they have the power to give you favorable ballot placement. If they had endorsed Bridget Harrison, who was likely to run against him in the primary, then you know it was kind of a toss-up, and then it would have been another toss-up in the general election. I mean, he might have had a 25% chance of of winning re-election as a Democrat. And so, yeah, I think his chances of winning as a Republican were stronger. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, uh, I I don't think Democrats have a great opportunity to beat him in the fall if he is the Republican nominee. This is, uh, this is not a district where a lot of activist money from around the country can, can compensate for a candidate who doesn't culturally connect with a part of the state that feels forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Well, good riddance. Uh, most, you know, I do think voters um, care about who is a phony and who's real, and authenticity does matter. I don't dispute what you've just said. I think he likely will. He made this decision primarily on what's in his best political interest, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if there is a how much the power of Trump plays in that district in terms of staving off a, a primary opponent. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on Mike Bloomberg. He's running a unique campaign. Um, not competing in the early states, focusing on Super Tuesday. He's up with a $100 million ad buy right now, uh, both national and in targeted in uh, Super Tuesday. Um, but wanted to get your thoughts on how's he doing right now? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a fundamental misreading of the Democratic electorate that he's being treated as a serious contender for the nomination to the extent he is. Now, I, <laughs> there's disagreement within our own report about that. Um, but I am pretty bearish on on Bloomberg for a couple of reasons. Um, I don't think Democratic voters dislike their field of candidates. They just disagree on which candidate they like. Um, and that's all backed up by uh, that's all backed up by polling. Absolutely. And and then, you know, is there a hunger in the Democratic field for another 77 year old white guy? Um I don't, I don't really think so. Or how about another billionaire? You know, we've had that with Tom Steyer. And every time Tom, every time Tom Steyer deluges Facebook with ads touting how he built a $36 billion business out of his garage, he forecloses another point of, of, de- of potential Democratic support because, look, Democratic primary voters do believe the system's rigged and believe that billionaires shouldn't exist um, in a lot of, <laughs> of pockets of the party. So- yeah, this is there, – there are numerous problems before you even try and get this thing off the ground, not to mention stop and frisk, not to mention the stories we've seen um, over the weekend about his comments uh, about women. So, look, he can spend hundreds of millions of dollars. 
I'll be very skeptical whether he moves the needle beyond four or five percent in many of these states and even approaches a viability threshold somewhere. Did you follow uh, the uh, UK elections at all? Yeah. 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 Any what are your what's your takeaway on that? I've been asked about this uh, in, in on a uh, couple different shows. I have uh, you know my thoughts were just that Boris Johnson just made things very simple for voters. Yeah, he had a very simple message. There are other things that went on, but sure. what, what what's your takeaway from there? Should Democrats be concerned about the outcome? You know, and that's been one storyline that people have been taken away from this that yeah. people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren should be concerned about what happened. But what what's your takeaway on the what happened in in the UK? Yeah, well, clearly we're not headed for that kind of blowout that we saw in the UK, and I, I've actually gotten a lot of blowback um, on Twitter for comparing um, the U.S. and the U.K. But I think what it does tell us is that there is much more room for Democrats to fall in non-big city parts of the country, uh, particularly in the upper Midwest. And, you know, the pattern that we saw in 2016 between the, the, the Brexit vote, particularly in the north of England, and what we saw in the upper Midwest of the U.S., um, it was quite striking. And we saw, of course, Boris Johnson break through even more uh, you know, by leaps and bounds, um, winning Sedgefield, which was Tony Blair's old constituency um, in the north of England. And there is potential for Wisconsin to become the next Ohio mm-hmm. if Democrats nominate a candidate who just does not play well there. And along with that, Minnesota could be in very serious jeopardy for Democrats. Now, of course, Democrats have a lot of opportunity in places like Arizona, potentially North Carolina, Georgia. Although I think Georgia and Texas are a little bit further down the line as 2024 prospects. But, you know, if you're losing Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, man, I, I think it would be very difficult for Democrats well, to win the, the White campaign. House back. Yeah. Yeah. Can't lose those three. Yeah. And traditionally, the way that Democrats have been able to win presidential elections in this country, and by the way, how Tony Blair was able to, to win um, a couple decades ago, was being a candidate from... Um, you know, the heartland or a non-elite part of the country who was still culturally fluent and had appeal in upscale suburbs. That was Bill Clinton. That was Barack Obama. And in this field, it's kind of hard to say who that candidate would be. Would it be Biden or Klobuchar? Maybe, but still hard to say. Right. And also limited Washington, D.C. experience. Bill Clinton had no D.C. experience. Obama had a couple years. Right. So they hadn't been defined as a creature of Washington. Yeah. Um, they were able to define themselves outside of Washington as a change agent. Um, uh, do you think Ohio is a battleground this year? No. Uh, in fact, I think Ohio and Iowa are pretty far off the map. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if Democrats are coming close to winning Ohio or Iowa, the election's already over and they've won by probably six or seven points, at least nationally. Um Likewise, Colorado and Virginia are off the map. They have exited stage left. Um, there's just no world in which they help decide a presidential election given the demographic patterns of the country. You know, I, I was able to put together a project at 538 in 2016 called the Swingomatic. But what we did was we took five demographic groups. We uh, reverse engineered the 2012 election results by county uh, down to uh, our best estimation of which demographic groups cast exactly how many votes for each candidate in, in each county. And we said, look, 
this is a pretty simple equation. What would happen if Trump were to win one out of every five white working class votes for Obama? And what would happen if Clinton were to win one out of, out of every five um, college educated white votes for Romney? What we had, you know, what we were able to do with that swingomatic essentially, you know, was to to predict where the candidates had the most upside. It's really, it's almost as simple as that as that formula um, moving from 2016 to, to 2020. And to me, that says that there are only a handful of states that are going to help decide this thing. I think if you really had to narrow it down, the, the most critical states are going to be Wisconsin and Arizona. Really? Yeah. Michigan. Very, well, look, uh, clearly there are six states where six or seven states where, where people's votes will matter a whole lot. Uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. I'd maybe throw in Minnesota. Um, you, might, you might throw in Georgia, which really isn't far behind North Carolina, but you really need a candidate who can dr- drive out African-American voters uh, like Obama did, which I think is kind of hard to do with this field. Uh, but look, President Trump has no route to victory without holding on to Florida and North Carolina. Democrats have no route to victory without winning back Michigan and Pennsylvania, in my opinion. I mean, maybe you could, you know, in in, in extreme version, you could tack on Georgia, but not Michigan. I don't know. But the two states really at the tipping point of the Electoral College, um, I, I believe, are Wisconsin and Arizona, two very different states. Wisconsin, obviously, traditionally Democratic, part of that blue wall, but it's it's not metropolitan. It's uh, It's got the highest proportion of non-college whites of any of those states. I just mentioned 62% of eligible voters in Wisconsin are whites without college degrees. Wow. Then you move to Arizona. Well, it's a traditionally Republican state, but there are a couple things going on there. Um, the first is that it's an extremely metropolitan state. 82% of Arizona's eligible voters live in metro areas with more than a million residents. Essentially, the state's dominated by Phoenix and Tucson. It's heavily suburban. Second thing going on there, unlike those upper Midwestern states, the rate of diversification is really, really high. The state is 4% less white in terms of its of the composition of the eligible electorate than it was four years ago. Most of that is Latino. The third factor, and this doesn't tend to get a lot of attention, but it's the LDS share of voters mm-hmm. in Arizona. If you go to Jeff Flake's old congressional district, the 6th district, and you compare Trump's share of the vote in 16 to Romney's share of the vote in 12, the margin was actually 10 points narrower. Yeah. And if those LDS voters do not warm to Donald Trump, then Trump is not going to benefit from the same types of growth in his appeal that he's benefiting from in northern Wisconsin, for right. example. I mean, people, people forget that Trump did right. pretty terribly in Utah. Oh, I yeah. mean, he won. He, but he won he, a plurality he, in right. Utah, whereas Trump, whereas Romney was over seventy right. percent. Right. Uh, real quick, um, what's your prediction on the Senate? Um, the Senate probably leans Republican. Um, you know, Democrats have to have to run the table to to get a Senate majority. Um, you know, it's it's not that difficult to to imagine them getting to fifty or fifty one on a really good night for them, but. I think Doug Jones is pretty much toast in Alabama. Even if Roy Moore were the Republican nominee, I think Roy Moore would win. Um, then you you know you start out at forty six. 
you get Colorado and Arizona back, which I think are by far the two best pickup opportunities. And I'd say Democrats are probably narrow favorites in both places. Have you met with um, those two Democratic candidates who are, I mean, I know there, there's actually more than one in, in Colorado, uh, but have you sat down with, uh, well, in, in Arizona, have you sat down with Mark Kelly yet? Our report has. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, okay. I primarily cover House. I know you could do the House, yeah. but you guys have, right? Yes. Yeah. And what I can tell you, I, I think Hickenlooper's entry into that race probably needlessly complicates things in Colorado, for Democrats yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. But in Arizona, I think Democrats' opportunity to that race is not just what I talked about in terms of the state's uh, electorate, but also the fact that Mark Kelly um, does not have a voting record. Um, he has a great biography. Right. Um, he has Astronaut. a lot of goodwill in the state. Uh, for obvious reasons. But McSally has just come off a very bruising Senate race, and she's got people who think she's a phony on the left and the right. So, yep. yeah, I, I would, if I were really forced, I would tip that race to Kelly. Yep, yep. Uh, and the House. Uh, I like Democrats' chances of keeping the House. Uh, by the way, I should mention on the Senate, I think the two bellwether races are going to be North Carolina and Maine. Uh, that, I think, makes the difference between 48 and 50 seats for Democrats. But in the House, where Republicans now need uh, 18 seats to get the majority, they needed 19 up until Van Drew, uh, they uh, have enough targets to get them there. Democrats are sitting on 30 districts that voted for, for Trump, whereas Republicans only have three districts that voted for Clinton. The problems are, number one, you know, historically, we haven't seen that large a shift of House seats in presidential cycles. Um, in seven of the previous eight presidential cycles, the net shift has only been in the single digits. Mm -hmm. So that would be less than half of what Republicans need. The second advantage for Democrats is the retirement situation yep. and the fact that Republicans have twice as many re uh, retirements as Democrats, but particularly those four open seats in majority non-white districts, three in Texas and one in Georgia. And so, you know, you add those to the mix. If Democrats pick up all four, which I think they're favorites in all four, um, they, you know, all of a sudden Republicans need 22 seats instead of 18. Then you add on what happened in North Carolina. And, uh, and the new map in North Carolina essentially gives Democrats uh, additional seats in Greensboro and Raleigh before the election even starts. So now you're talking about Republicans needing to pick up a net of 24. They don't even have candidates in some of those 30 Trump Democrat districts. And so it becomes right. very difficult in the math. Right. And, and uh, you know, I'm obviously biased, but uh, I think that the DCCC and, uh, and the frontliners have done a pretty exceptional job putting themselves in a position to win re-election. I think, you know, if you look at fundraising uh, for each quarter, they've been very strong. The DTRIP is doing a great job of raising money. Um, I think they've done a good job of recruitment. I think North Carolina 9 was actually a good, uh, you know, the outcome we lost, but it was a, you know, it was a very close race. And I think the way in which they approached that race was smart. Um, so it reminds me a lot of 2008. Slight, you know, there's some differences, but, you know, the fact we just won the House, we, we were dealing with a bunch of incumbents. Uh, but early on, it was established that, like, we need to do everything we can to fortify ourselves and possibly put some pressure on Dem on Republicans like I think they're doing in Texas. Now, I don't know how how what you think about our opportunities in Texas, but that has been a storyline that Republicans are having to deal with this Texas, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think the 7th and 32nd districts in Houston and Dallas, which Colin Allred and Lizzie Fletcher picked up. You know, I think they're on their way to becoming pretty strong Democratic seats. The real battlegrounds in Texas are going to be 
those open seats, the 22nd, the 23rd, the 24th. Um, it's kind of a nice triangle of San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. But given the trend line in those districts, they ought to be Democratic pickups in yep. 2020. Um, there are a few additional opportunities for Democrats, you know, Chip Roy's district, John Carter's district. You can make a case for Michael McCall's seat. I think that will be competitive in Austin. Um, but, you know, clearly D- Texas is the future for Democrats. And while I don't think they'll pick up the state house in 2020, um, I do think this is probably the last time Republicans will be able to redistrict the state in 2021. Yeah. Dave Wasserman, thank you so much for coming on The Electables. This has been great. Thanks. This has been so much fun to nerd out with, yeah, with my yeah. fellow nerds. Yep, yep. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Um, and uh, again, the, the Democratic debate is this week. It'll be uh, interesting to see what, if any, impact it'll have on the polls. It, what, are you, what are your, just before you go, what what is your sense of the impact or lack of impact that the debates have had on the on the polling? I mean, what, I, I don't know if there's been a, I mean, I think at points there have been, but Long term, I'm not not entirely sure. Yeah, I, look, I, I think the the earned media in this race, whether it's the debates or the news coverage, still far outpaces the the paid media in in terms of the value um, of these Democrats' exposure to to the to the the eligible electorate. And what's going to be fascinating for us to watch is if um, if these Democrats have kind of clear patterns between some of the states that are are closed to Democratic um, registrants, which would, I think, attract a more hardcore group of people who've been watching these debates, and how they perform in open primary states where you might have, you know, people who... Now, New Hampshire's yeah. open, right? That's right. And South Carolina's closed. It's closed, right? Or no? Um, I believe... I don't... I believe South Carolina does not have party registration, so I... Okay. I'll, I'll have to double check that, check but... That. but yeah, I, I think uh, clearly the 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 Bernie appeal is more with with non non Democratic registrants. Uh, I would not count him out, by the way, because I think his coalition is genuinely working class, as opposed to Elizabeth Warren's, which which is predominantly um, middle upper class, college educated, and white. The great Dave Wasserman. You can find him on Twitter at, at @redistrict. Uh, he's also the house editor for the Cook Political Report, uh, a fountain of knowledge. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Electables. Thanks, you're too kind. And uh, for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. This is Doug Thornell. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>